the insight I got was in Australia, particularly at the bureaucratic, political level and senior defense levels, the mindset is a lot of what you can't do and the reasons why you can't do that. Over there, the mindset was, this is what we need to do. Find a way to do it. All the way up to, we got shot at from across the border of another country. And I watched the colonel turn to his secretary of state and saying, you're going to need to make some calls and got back on the got back on the radio to his guys and said, engage. Today's guest is a retired Special Forces major and decorated combat veteran who successfully completed the highly competitive Special Forces selection and training to become a qualified commando officer within the 2nd Commando Regiment. Completing appointments of the Commando Platoon Commander and Company Executive Officer, these appointments included three operational deployments to Afghanistan and Middle East area of operations and saw operational service in a number of domestic counterterrorism ops within the Australian Pacific region. He was posted on exchange to serve within the United States Special Operations Command, including an additional operational deployment to the Middle East area of operations. After he was promoted to major and appointed officer commanding of the commando and support selection staff and training continuum at the Special Forces Training Centre. And later that year completed his final operational deployment to Iraq as a Special Operations Joint Lead Planner within the Special Operations Task Force. Officially discharging from the Australian Defence Force in January 2019, he is the founder of Voice of a Veteran, a platform to better support the modern veteran community. He has a key focus to help the wider Australian community to better understand the value of veterans and common issues transitioning to civilian life. He has now formed the Veterans Support Force, an impact organisation that is tasked to proactively support veterans and their families throughout the conduct of the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide. Episode 101. Heston Russell. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Welcome, Heston. Hey, Diana, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on your podcast and thank you for your patience in achieving this. That's okay. No problems at all. I'm excited to have you on. You're very active in the veteran community space and particularly in regards to mental health, which I love. Mm -hmm. But I want to sort of, before we get into all of that aspect of things, I think it's important for people that don't understand you. I mean, you'd have to be under a, a rock in Australia if they don't know who you are. But let's sort of go back in regards to why you joined the military in the first place, because you've got a very, I'll do your intro separately, because I don't, I get embarrassed if I do the intro in front of the. Oh, yeah, I hate it. And look, the number one topic I hate talking about is me, my sort of mindset, oh. like now and moving forward. But I help to, appre- I've been taught to appreciate that um, it actually helps others better understand sort of where I'm coming from on some of the discussion points we'll have. So, um me, uh, I grew up in a uh, military family. My dad, my dad was in the army. My granddad fought on the hook in Korea and was also in the Vietnam War. Um, great grandfather, World War Two. Great great grandfather fought on the Western Front in World War One. Um, and dad went to Iraq and Afghan before me. So um, I was always around uh, what I saw as aspirational men in particular. 
when I moved around in the military sort of family and community. And I was sort of the fat, unpopular kid at school. And from about the age of really? 13 or 14, I hate it. I have literally compartmentalized and burned to a crisp my um, schooling years. Yeah, I just was yeah, not. Yeah, I hated school too for that reason. I was, I was fat. I was like the fat kid at school. I never had a girlfriend. I... There was no issues with sexuality or anything back there. I just was never popular. I was always trying to impress others. I wasn't comfortable with who I was. I'd go out of my mm. way to try and buy friendship, essentially. And we all know, you know, if you don't have that self-confidence, then it sort of permeates through to every part of your personal and professional life. So uh, mm. from about grade nine and then grade 10, when I first walked into a recruiter, I was like, I want to be a commando um, because I had a good friend of mine who was going through and being a commando after going through ad for an RMC to be an officer. And I set that as my glide path and everything else in between was a means to an end. So when I graduated high school up here in Brizzy at the age of 17, I turned 17 in November and two months later I was down in Canberra and went through the Defence Force Academy. It's one thing saying I want to be in the army or military, but it's another thing saying I want to specifically be a commando. Was it just the fact that you mate? wanted to be a commando? Is that the only reason why it was sort of drawn to your attention? It was. I always sort of, you could imagine growing up feeling like you've never had your true potential realized based on factors, primarily on popularity and, you know, not being able to express your physicality that I wanted to be the highest level of whatever it was, it was I wanted to be and special forces and particularly a commando given I did at that stage, understand the difference between commandos and SAS and particularly as an officer, I saw as the ultimate challenge to me being in the military. And I set my sights on that. So you might want to briefly explain the difference for those that aren't familiar with the difference between the two. Yeah. Well, the, and the key thing is the difference is the difference is ever changing. So that the legacy of the commandos comes from the Z Special Force units back in World War Two. And think of um, wasn't really. I thought that the SAS that was the SAS legacy. Well, the SAS is kind of both. The SAS is more long range reconnaissance. Um, you know, back in sort of long range desert reconnaissance through to small teams behind enemy lines, recon patrols in Vietnam. The commandos right. have always been um, shock action, not shock action. I'll say the commando raids were sort of shock action, large mobile forces looking to, you know, seize and hold the initiative, doing raids on ports, the famous Clipper mission to, you know, sink um, ships in the Singaporean harbour through to the commandos at that time, 2002, three, four, five, when I joined ADFA, uh, were, you know, doing larger scale operations uh, in Afghanistan SAS was as well, but there were sort of really clearly defined roles. One was more special reconnaissance, strategic reconnaissance, and one was direct action and counterterrorism. And in particular, um, SAS operated in uh, patrols and troops, which were smaller than commando teams and platoons. Uh, and as an officer, being either a platoon or a troop commander, whichever way I wanted to go, I wanted to be able to have the most amount of men and resources at my disposal to do the job because I, I enjoy complex problems. I enjoy lots of moving parts. I enjoy sort of that much more in out on guard, decisive action. Um, I'm impatient. I have ADHD, all those sort of good things. It's sort of catered to uh, my personality type essentially. So what's the, what's the 
pathway to becoming a commander? Do you join as an officer in the general army and then apply for the selection course, or is there a direct yeah. pathway? There's a, there's a direct pathway for um, entry as a soldier, as an officer. I graduated three years ADFA, one year RMC, then went up to Townsville as an infantry platoon commander for three years, deployed to his team or one of those years. And then 2010, I applied to attempt the commander selection course. Well, I applied in 2009, did the whole barrier testing. And then 2010, I did the commando selection course in February. And at that stage, that was a six-week selection course where we started with a panel of 120, 20 officers and 100 soldiers. And we finished with a panel of, I think, 30 uh, of about four officers uh, and the rest were soldiers. And the fascinating thing about a selection course is that 80 to 90% of the people in the course withdraw themselves at own request. And these are people who have had to serve a minimum three or four years in the military usually have trained up for a year, if not more, to get to the physical requirements and everything else and the psychological screening requirements. And the selection course is fantastic at breaking you down physically and mentally and revealing your deep emotional purpose, your intrinsic purpose. And I say that because the last job I had in my career was reforming and running the commando selection course as a major at the Special Forces Training Center. And for those listening, very quick example, I started the selection course at about 91 kilos and I finished at 76. And to date, it is still the hardest thing I ever did in my career. As someone that's passed the selection course, what's your feeling and then ultimately ran it? Yeah. What are your thoughts about it being so public now on social media? Because you can YouTube it and it pretty much tells you. So the selection course is simply to select people who then go on to complete the reinforcement and training cycle. So that's another year's worth of training where you're doing roping course, close quarter shooting courses, demolition courses, um, parachuting courses, amphibious courses, all the other specialty courses that actually make a commando. The selection course is simply about selecting you as a human, selecting you to be the right person, knowing that we can then train you to do anything and um, I would literally retire for the rest of my years running selection courses or like courses where people are broken down physically and mentally to reveal their emotional character, their value set, their purpose, their intrinsic motivations, removing all of those extrinsic motivational factors. It's fascinating and particularly doing it in a way in which you help them to realize and learn more about themselves. Like when someone would withdraw off the course, you know, you'd sit them down, you'd take them back through their observations and their experiences and your observations, and you would send them back out into the wider army and into the world as more emotionally intelligent individuals. So they actually get that feedback. It's not like hand in your form and then see you later. And that was a big part of sort of my time in two commando. And then ultimately my time running it was really appreciating that the majority of people are not going to pass the course. So the way in which we actually send them back out into the wider defense force, they are our word of mouth recruiters. And for them to have been put in that experience that makes you learn so much about yourself and to not, and to capitalize on that. So they literally feel like even though they didn't pass the course, they have achieved so much value personally and professionally and they have, and making sure they don't carry with them shame and not passing the course or resentment and not being selected, you know, really right there. And then is when you actually sit down and have that emotionally mature conversation that can actually take someone from high performance to elite, even though they're not serving in the special forces. There's a lot of talk in regards to the dwindling numbers across multiple different countries in regards to not only 
army is a larger but special forces and therefore altering the standards to try and get more people through the door. Yeah. Um, no way. Like this, yeah. is, this is where we get it <laughs> wrong. Like yeah. this is the best part. We spent so much time developing the selection course and even the barrier test fitness requirements. We work with the Australian Institute of Sport to develop how far we need people to carry what weight. So we either can then use different weather assessment tables so we can make people go harder and faster in, you know, more hot conditions without it potentially impacting their, you know, kidney function, their physiological function, what we can put on males versus females, given hip displacement, all these things, the science and specialty that goes into the back end of that. It's not simply back in the day of pick up heavy stuff and move it. It is so refined and every single activity you do on this selection course comes down to accessible criteria. We have the commando attributes. So whether it's sorting white rice from brown rice or carrying, you know, heavy weights up a hill, there is assessed criteria and commando attributes that that stand has to be tailored to meet. And every individual is reported on that. And when you lower your inputs, you lower your outputs. Like selections are meant to be focused on equality uh, on outcome. It's a quality of opportunity for inputs, but it comes down to the outputs we produce and we're selecting people who we can then go on to train. So at the end of the day, you know, and this is all, it's a massive backcasting operation. It's what is the operational requirement of Australia and the government that says to our special forces, what are the skills and courses and knowledge and attributes and all the other emotional and psychological elements we now know working with massive human performance specialists within the unit to break that down to what are the attributes and the base level performance requirements we need people to meet and select them against. So they're not going to break themselves on the courses to become qualified. And so they are going to be able to perform at the levels required in combat, in counterterrorism back home, in clandestine operations, whatever at that time the key selection requirements are. It's not from the front end, we want to smash people and only finish with 30. It's from the back end. What is the end requirement and how do we establish a glide path that gives us the most sustainable and longevity out of those we do select? Do you think that that mindset is still the case with uh, the more senior echelon of the armed forces? Absolutely not because most of them haven't done it. The chief of the defence force, Angus Campbell, was unceremoniously removed from SAS back when he was a company commander. And I have so many stories I'd love to tell, but I get in trouble. Um, and it's a man who- has We can been, do that off, off when we stop the recording. Yeah, he personally <laughs> has been a man who's been too influenced by the political and bureaucratic pressures that now push into what used to be, you know, a very pure and authentic culture within the military that was fo focused on actions and, actions and attitudes, capability and character outputs, mission focus, achieving things as team. The culture within Defence Force sees purpose and people before yourself, the mission and the team before yourself. And I talk about they were my proactive layers of resilience and they are your proactive layers of resilience when you're in that truly aligned team and on real you know, missions that you believe in. These days, and this is the difficulty that Defence Force has all over Australia is as we're entering into peacetime, as they've been pulled in every direction, supporting humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, COVID, as there are quotas starting to come into systems where they were previously completely egalitarian, being that you earned your place through meeting the requirements, regardless of your race, sex, 
sex, gender, belief, preference, or anything else in between, you have this culture of entitlement from outside society rubbing up against this culture of responsibility and earned respect within defense. And the issue is the weight of the external pressures are coming from those with stars and brass on their shoulders, not those who have been there and walked the path and appreciated at an intrinsic and emotional level, the true value of doing things the right way, not what is seen to be right in the public opinion. Considering we're going down this, this road now, I'm going to st- step aside from the um, career path aspect that we we're talking about just a moment ago. We'll go back to it. But yeah. wh- how do you think that, that the boat gets turned around on that and goes back to you earn your place and it's not a quota-based system? One of my favorite quotes, without a higher performance, sorry, if you want a higher performance, you need a higher purpose. And at the moment, we don't have a higher purpose that is pulling our focus, our resources, our quantifying the need forward. Instead, we are too busy looking down and in. We are tribes in conflict, be that in the military, be that in Australia as a nation, because there's nothing that is unifying us up and forward towards what we're working working towards. In my career, that was Afghanistan. That was Iraq fighting ISIS at the end of our career. There's been the you domestic terrorism stuff. You don't think China, the threat of China's and Pacific securities aligning? People are, people are definitely trying to push that, and that's great. And we can sit here all day and talk about how Australia can last 15 minutes in a battle against China if we really want to. But most people sort of realise that, yes, that's definitely something we need to do, but it's not it's not tangible. It's not there. It's not right in front of most people. It's not palatable. You don't see droves of young Australians joining the Defence Force because they generally have that fear. You see the Defence Force at a time where it has all-time high retention issues, all-time low recruitment um, success, and Australians who are less and less likely, even though their defence is throwing money like um, retention bonuses and everything else at it, because they don't have that intrinsic motivation, and we're resorting to extrinsic motivators to try and build and maintain a defence force. And extrinsic motivators are the first thing to cut away when people are in fight and flight, when they are in survival mode. And we select people based on those intrinsic motivators. I want to come back to that statement because I think that this is a rabbit hole that I do want to go down. But I think that if we go down it now, I want to sort of um, talk about your career in more detail. So when we discuss it, it comes with a level of credibility from the listeners that they, if you know what I mean. Um, You're saying I'm not credible? No, I'm saying you're bloody credible and we want the <laughs> listeners to, to listen to your story so they understand just how I credible. It. I love it. Yeah, cool. No, happy. That's a shit story. I, mean, I, can, I, can quickly talk, I can quickly talk through through my career if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, so, well, yeah, joined, this, joined the commandos in 2010, did the selection course and then spent the rest of that year doing the reinforcement training cycle, which was amazing. As an officer, you are literally required to do all of the courses and and competencies as if you are the soldier roping off the tower or jumping out of the helicopter or blowing up the door. And then at the end of each course, you're required to be the officer and command a group, a team, a platoon in doing that as an actual mission set and applying that skill set to the next mission set as you expand in those skills. And at the very end of uh, that year, 2010, I took over November platoon um, within Alpha Company of Two Commander Regiment and rotated straight onto the Tactical Assault Group East so the TAG East is the force of last resort, no-fail mission for the government of Australia for domestic counterterrorism. So 
you know, someone gets taken hostage in Australia or even overseas, you know, we are the go-to premium force who trains to be able to respond within a very short time frame. I'm not allowed to say how short that is. That's fine. With helicopters, with boats, with assets, with everything else in between, we need to go in there when every other force has failed to do so. So when there was that Lint Cafe siege in Sydney, you know, by the time, you know, that was hitting people's TVs, we had teams building complete mock-ups of that Lint Cafe out at our 360-degree range at Holsworthy, and teams were running through getting ready to do so. We had the building schematics, we had snipers, we had everything else ready to go. And that one incident exposed so many critical flaws within our um, red tape government and bureaucratic systems where we should have resolved that as if it was a fly on the wall because it's the stuff we do day in and day in Afghanistan. But instead it was stuck in politics uh, and the state and prime minister would not hand that over to the military because back then it had to be declared as martial law. So that training and all of 2011 when I was on the tag, you know, every day of the week, Monday, you're shooting at the range until your finger hurts. Tuesday, you're roping off towers and helicopters and everything else in between. Wednesday, you're off doing your specialist skill sets. And Thursday, you come together as a platoon and you practice platoon mission after platoon mission, full planning, full execution, full debriefs, repeat. And then you travel all around the country working with other police elements, other agencies and have others around the world and, um, you know, end of that year, I flew over and did an exercise with the people who killed Osama bin Laden two weeks after they killed bin Laden. We didn't know it was going to happen. We planned it three months out. And then it was one of the most amazing times ever. And then 2012, I rotated with my same platoon, November platoon onto Afghanistan operations. So um, I deployed over there as a platoon commander for special operations task group 18. Um, that was actually my third deployment to Afghanistan at that time. End of 2011, I took our then Prime Minister Julia Gillard over on her first trip to Afghanistan. And that was Yes, my, I wondered. I, saw, yeah, I heard that that was first your trip. first trip. How does one get protection services for the um, Prime Minister when you haven't had a deployment? Well, it was unique. So a PSD or a protective security detachment is a team and the commandos had that role. Uh, and there's the PSD commander, which was a fellow captain mate of mine. But um, because it was the prime minister, she sort of goes into some very high level meetings that uh, we decided would be benefited with one, the very high security clearance that I had as an officer. Um, and just two, that sort of level of conversation, communication and corporate information I could bring to bear. But it really got a lot of soldiers and sergeants noses out of joint. So my mate, Rafe, who was the platoon commander, he actually went, took us down to the range and these other people who wanted to be the personal security officer, which was the job I got. We had a shoot off at the range. We did cross-level skills in and out of the armored vehicles. We did all these things. And very fortunately, you know, I was, I was 26. Um, I, I was very fit, very capable. And I've always been very good physically and I've always been a very good shot. And I actually was able to prove my pudding right there on the range, which sort of shut a lot of people up and it was a lot of fun, but yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And that was such an amazing experience for my first time. And then back over there in 2012, I went on a recon. Um, and then I deployed with my full platoon in July and between July and December, 2012, we conducted 67 missions outside the wire. We killed 117 insurgents. We captured so many more. And on the 21st of October, 2012, we, lost Corporal Scott James Smith, one of my um, engineer corporals um, who was killed trying to disarm an IED, but saving the rest of his team. And uh, that deployment was the self-actualization of my personal and professional military career. It was 
the most amazing period of my life when I was so aligned in head, body and heart to the mission, the team, the role. There was never once that I feared for my life. I was so focused on the mission and my team and so believed in what we were doing and uh, being able to put all of those years and months beforehand of training experience into action, being able to choreograph and orchestrate combat on such a massive scale. You know, as a commando platoon, I'd have four, five, six teams of six out on the ground spread over potentially five kilometers or converged all in one village in a close quarter fight. I'd be able to bring in the finger of God from planes and drones and assets and rockets and everything else in between and uh, be able to plan with my team who was so much more experienced than me to the point where I actually hate it when people say the expression, no plan survives H-hour or no plan survives contact with the enemy because on that deployment and the level of professional planning and experience and wargaming and contingency planning we did, 60 to 70% of our missions, we were dictating terms to our enemy every single place we found them and we knew what they were going to do. And it was just incredible. And it's all the stuff you've seen in the movie. And it is a level of inspiration and authenticity and accountability and reality that I still struggle with letting go of um, in a world of today where it's so hard to get people to even be close to that level of intrinsic motivation, where it's so hard to not to come from having that level of real life and death responsibility to waking up. And the only thing I have to do today is to take my dog for a walk. <laughs> it's so hard coming from being so inspired. We never ever feared for your own life for the most authentic reasons to catching a flight from Brisbane to Sydney, hitting turbulence and <laughs> praying to God 14 times. <laughs> it's, it's the most amazing sort of juxtaposition for me. And it's a lot, that I cling back to just to remember I, I've been blessed to appreciate just how amazing the human spirit and everything else in between can be. And even more so with a team that you were just so proud being a part of seeing what they're doing for the right reasons and in the most selfless way. So anyway, then rotated off that 2013, became the XO of the company and spent my time bopping around the Asia-Pacific region, um, doing advanced force operations, linking in with heads of missions, uh, with embassies, testing them on things like their business continuity plan, their emergency response plan, doing international operations with the crew, um, with the commando company, basically as if you know we needed to respond to anything anywhere in the Asia-Pacific region and making sure we had the training, but also the networks required and some very cool stuff. 2014, I became the adjutant, the senior captain of the unit. And then 2015, I was sent on a one-year exchange to the US Special Operations. And I spent eight months primarily in Columbus, Georgia, and then deployed on my fourth and final deployment to Afghanistan with a classified US Special Operations Task Force and was the first Australian deployed outside of our um, end of operations in Afghanistan, which was at the end of 2014. And I deployed under Operation Freedom Sentinel in 2015. And that's where I really is, got to. Sorry. Is this, task, is this task force still classified? Uh, uh, it was Task Force 310. It's now called Task Force 7. But what we did is, yeah, that's the stuff where the Americans will get yeah. me in trouble. <laughs> you don't mess with the Americans. They do things properly. But that, <laughs> that was probably the beginning of the end for my career, to be honest. Why? Why was that the beginning of the year, uh, beginning of the end? 
because again, that was my fourth deployment of Afghanistan at that time. And I got to see how, what I say, the big boys and girls do it. I got to see the acceptance of strategic risk down at the colonel level that would have been pushed up to the ministerial level in Australia. It took me the majority of that year in the US to get the bureaucrats and finally the minister to sign off on sending me over there. And they tried to send me over there with the most restrictive rules of engagement where I couldn't even leave the base and was just an embarrassment. And then my American, you know, commanders are just like, Hey, cool, sweet. We've got it. Are you going to, you know, embarrass your country? No, we know that. They even asked me to stay on and become a um, special operations uh, company commander within the U S and were willing to do that sort of paperwork. It was incredible that the, the insight I got was in Australia, particularly at the bureaucratic political level and senior defense levels, the mindset is a lot of what you can't do and the reasons why you can't do that. Over there, the mindset was, this is what we need to do, find a way to do it. All the way up to, we got shot at from across the border of another country and I watched the colonel turn to his secretary of state and saying, you're going to need to make some calls. <laughs> And got back on the got back on the radio to his guys and said, "Engage, like incredible stuff." Um, and at the same time, on a very personal journey, up until this point, I had been really struggling with suppressing and trying to convert myself from any form of homosexuality that I was experiencing. Um, and I set myself the affirmation of actually going on that one year to the U S and finding myself a beautiful Southern bill whose dad had oil rigs in Texas and coming and coming back. <laughs> I love and the making... stereotype. You had to go the stereotype. hundred <laughs> percent. I had to maintain that stereotypical heterosexual image required of an elite commando officer. It was great. The Southern coming... bell. Oh, yeah. Goodness, that's coming so back funny. and making my mum and dad grandparents and proud and happy. And that's because I never grew up knowing gay people. It was, there were no gay people within the special forces. Um, you know, homosexuality was definitely allowed within the defense force. It just wasn't within the hyper filtered community that I've said beforehand of special forces and for me, commandos. And it was seen as a weakness. It was the general payout, you know, stop being a faggot or all these sort of good things, you know, really? Well, it, no, as in, I was like, as in, not as in like cutting of the tongue, but just colloquially and jovially. And um, by that time, having moved from Brisbane, Townsville, Canberra, and then finally in Sydney, the first encounter with gay culture was Oxford Street in Sydney, and it scared the shit out of me. It was men in midriffs and makeup with drag queens, and it was this feminine side of the the male um, sexuality that was not comfortable with me. You know, I didn't like that. I liked men, but it didn't mesh with what was my true intrinsic motivation, which was my career, which was my team and which was the missions that I was on. So then when I moved to the U S 2015, I had some friends that I'd met socially and through the military. And I ended up spending time in New York and LA and I got to see professional gay men and professional real gay culture integrated into society. That wasn't, you know, sort of standout grandstanding testimony. It was just integrated professionally. And I met, attractive guys who I didn't even know was gay until someone else told me, you know, and really instead had the opposite effect and actually started seeing a guy on the secret while I was over there. And then when I came back to Australia, I came back to an Australia that was right in the middle of the lead up to the gay marriage vote. And I came back to a defense force, which started to look to promote people 
based on their sexuality to demonstrate that they were abiding by, you know, what was going on in outside culture. And immediately I retreated back into my heterosexual box uh, because the last thing I ever wanted to happen within my commando culture, within my warrior culture, as it's been heard of, is to be advanced forward in any way based on my sexuality, something I didn't earn, something that I finally realized I was born with, something that worked completely against our culture. And at that time, I was a major when I went back to Australia in 2016. Um, and I started heading up the commando selection course. I wasn't ready to be the first gay commando as the second highest ranking person in the unit. I didn't want it getting in the way of running the commando course of entire men who, you know, sometimes they're getting hosed down completely naked. I didn't want people thinking, is he looking at me? I've never once ever had any sexual attraction to anything to do with military and work. And today when <laughs> the random gay guys say, Hey, have you still got your uniform? Like that is like the most, turn off thing to me <laughs> my mindset completely disassociates sexuality from my profession and uh you can imagine that was quite a personal experience and journey to go through and um but yeah i actually started seeing someone different in 2016 another american when i went over for coachella and sort of maintained that secret boyfriend side of the house and then i deployed to iraq the end of 2016 2017 we had a commando task group over there supporting the Iraqis on the ground fighting ISIS. Um, and people still don't know that. And we had it for a year on end. And I was there when we were helping to liberate Mosul. I was there when we were taking the fight to people who were stringing up young girls and cutting them in half, starting from the middle of their crutch through to the, the top of their head and hanging them in the streets. We were there fighting Jesus Christ. real evil. And it was so evil that we were able to help bring together or it brought together the Kurds fighting with the Iraqis, Iranians fighting with the Iraqis, you know, the Israelis supporting with equipment. It brought together all these different cultures so focused on fighting that evil that was their purpose. And um, again, I at that time was the special operations plans officer in the special operations joint task force, which was again, a primarily American led task force. And I got to see the big boys and girls in action while well, we had our Australian task force there who were fighting with government back in Australia, asking for Bushmasters to be sent over so they could get closer to support the Iraqis on the ground. Australia being not willing to send a Bushmaster because it looked, because it had Australian colours, so they wanted to paint it black and no one realised that only Australians had Bushmasters, whatever bloody colour you painted it. You know, these are the conversations that were happening here, whereas at the top level, I was working with other countries and the department of state and we're planning on how we're going to reposture and move down to Syria afterwards. And, and at that point I realized I was in love with my partner, Blake back in LA and that I was missing part of a personal life that I had compartmentalized my entire life. And while I was so fulfilled professionally, all of a sudden I had these personal emotions that I'd never felt before outside of inspiration and sort of bromance love for, the team I was responsible for. So when I got back to Australia 2017, they wanted to start the cycle of sending me down to staff college or looking to do one year as a company commander further and the promotion stream. And instead I took long service leave. I took the 130 days leave. I had my book and I went to the U S and lived with Blake and the rest was sort of history. I ended up officially discharging 2019, but um, in between I built a life that could bring Blake to Australia. We brought a brand called Barry's Bootcamp over from 
the US to Australia and opened studios in Sydney, Melbourne, and Singapore. And um, that relationship eventually broke down literally at the start of COVID in 2020. Oh, that's phases that was not the ending that I wanted, Heston. Phases and stages. I wouldn't change a thing because I was so uncomfortable with who I was personally and never being able to integrate that with who I was in my military career professionally. So when I left the military and started my life with Blake, I completely shifted into embracing the gay community who were so accepting of me and none of them knew that I was ever in the military and I didn't have social media and all that. None of the military knew that I was gay. So I maintained these two completely separate lives and it brought all of these issues for me. Yeah. And my military career was a complete point of um, uncertainty and unfamiliarity for Blake and for so many in the gay community, it's just so foreign to them um, that I just simply made that part of my identity subordinate to those I was around. And I just basically drew a line in the sand and tried to make a new life. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, it's only through circumstances sort of since 2019 onwards that in a very public way, I've been forced to, you know, connect the pieces and truly be my true and authentic self and realize the empowerment that comes from that. So you, you retired at the rank of major mm-hmm. yes. and you're a company commander then or platoon commander? Yeah, so I was, I was a company commander at um, the special forces training center. So running the selection course, I had a company of people and its classes being a company commander, but I was never a commando company commander. That was my next year if I stayed in and I chose not to. So when did you, you publicly, you've sort of, how do I phrase this? You've led it. This is, I think I do have ADHD myself. (laughs) So you're having these two separate lives. Completely separate. Like I was Mike on the apps. Like I, I had Grindr. I was Mike. I never had a picture. I like at one point I even had a fake phone. Like I would park my car around the block. Yeah, it was, you know, it was great. It was uh, everything I was trained to be personally and professionally. (laughs) And then, so did you come out like publicly? Was it not like social media? I never had, so 2015 when I was in the US and when I finally realized that I was gay and accepted that, my sister was living up in Banff in Canada and I went and visited her. And I literally remember it was Banff is so beautiful. It was like frozen winter and we're walking over a frozen lake up near, um, there's like a little uh, indigenous sort of wares hut up there. And I just said, Hey, what would you say if I was gay? And she turned to me and said, um, are you doing anything illegal or are you hurting anyone? I said, no. And she said, why does it matter? And those words are just so incredible. My sister's younger than me and she's just a sage. And the next questions are, are you okay? And I was like, I really am. And then I called mum that night and um, mum was great. My sister actually said, oh my God, mum is going to cry. And I said, why? She's like, she's always wanted you to have grandkids. I was like, oh, fair enough. So I called mum. She was great. She called back an hour later, bawling her eyes out, saying I always wanted you to have babies. And I let her know I'd actually met people in the US who had surrogacies and all this sort of stuff. And it was all new to all of us. And I didn't tell my dad until later in 2016 when I got home. My dad was a military man. My dad is a very religious Mm. man. We all grew up in the church. I still say my prayers at night. And I just know the relationship that a lot of the um, Christian community has with that combined with, you know, as a, as a son in the army, you always want your dad's approval as well. So, and he was great. And I actually sort of recorded that conversation. Um, it's not um, glamorous, but it's actually on my social media somewhere and I should do more with it one day. But 
they're the only people that I reached out to and told. And again, the rest of 2016 outside of my completely separate US gay mm. life um, and my relationship, I kept that quiet. And all that simply happened was particularly once I started doing the Barry's thing and became a bit more visible on media and social media and things like that. A lot of people put two and two together and some people asked me and it's just when people started to ask me, I said, yes. And that was it. I never had it coming out. The funniest story for me is actually January. That's kind of better though. Cause you're oh. not making a big song and dance about it. It's like, this is, you're not making it who you are. It's just part of you. Well, my aspiration is that we never, we, we get to a point where you don't have to come out. You just are you. Yeah. But I yeah. also completely appreciate that so many people and their need to come out comes from a place of trauma. It comes from a place of one, like I did, rejecting themselves, or mm. two, having others reject you. And knowing what that feels like as a fat, unpopular kid at school, I completely get it. And some people need, and it's easier to just get it over and done with so it's out there. The mm. issue is, particularly within the gay society, particularly with any minority society it's so easy to be influenced by those around you and to be motivated by that trauma for it to turn into entitlement and for it to turn into wanting to get back at those or others or difference that made you feel that way and i was very fortunate that i had a grounding of that defense culture that commando culture that earning your own way and that responsibility before entitlement that actually helped me and also some very you know wise experience and kind um, gay men that I met in the US to sort of help mentor me in the right direction um, as well. But the most fascinating part is when I say come 2018, 2019, 2020, um, started to run into some of my former guys from the commandos, just the incredible response from them going, you know, we, we performed at the elite level. The difference between high performance and elite is mindset. You see that in the Olympics. There are people who have run a better PB than what they run on the finals because they're in their own head. You can train to a point, but the difference between high performance and elite is mindset. And we knew that in the commandos and we were selected and trained on that. And one of the guys said this to me. He said, just knowing that you were potentially using one, two, or even 5% of your emotional strength to think that you had to hide some part of yourself makes me truly wonder what you potentially could have achieved if you were able to feel comfortable putting that into everything that you were doing because you know we loved you and love you for what you who you are and what you did and not any other label that society tries to put on you in between and that's that culture mm -hmm. again that I spoke about beforehand that I look around on the outside and when I run for politics or put the political party together I have people come up to me saying I don't agree with your life choices um, and I say is that to point Afghanistan four times or me being gay <laughs> <laughs> and watching their heads explode. Eh? <laughs> Tell me, given the fact that you've, you know, life as a, in special forces, you're sort of in the shadows. It's not something that you should have really shout from the rooftops as a security element yeah. um, as well in that, which feeds amazing. into some amazing court stuff that's going on at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll just park that there. Yeah. Um, but given that, what made you sort of come out in such a publicly, not sexually, but a publicly way in regards to uh, outing yourself in terms of that you were ex-former commando? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, good questions. Uh, first and foremost, could you imagine 
because we weren't allowed to have social media or anything by our name online during our career. Could you imagine what it would be like to be able to go about your job each day and not feel like you needed to look at social media or check in and do all that? Like, it's amazing. You have so much more capacity and focus and emotional um, steadiness not having that. It's true, it, though. I'm looking for an app at the moment to block so it blocks it so I can turn my phone into a brick so I completely <laughs> understand that. We would go to work and you would have to put your phone in the lead locker. Like, and when you go home, like you're not accessing emails and you're not, you know, you might be playing with your gear. You might be doing dry practices in the mirror, but like work is you switched off, you disconnect, you're out. It's, it's amazing. And just, Oh, anyway. Um, when I got out of the military end of, end of January, I actually on my Instagram, which I finally changed to my name, Heston Russell, as opposed to Heston Russellecki and private and everything else it was beforehand. I actually posted a picture of me in my service uniform with my medals and beret. And um, just sort of, because it was hilarious because by this time with Barry's and everything in Sydney, I had a gay community who never knew about my military career. And I had my military crew who never knew really, but most of them had put two and two together because we'd done some media stuff and all that with Barry's and they're like, who's this six foot one all American Blake dude. Who's always with you in every photo. <laughs> uh, and so many people thought that that military picture and me talking about the end of my career was me coming out. And I was like, it was, it was me coming out to the gay community that I'd been in the military. <laughs> and again, watching people's head, people like, you can still scroll back through. I think it's like 24th of January, 2019 on my Instagram. People like, good on you for coming out. Rah, rah, rah. You could imagine I had people from the gay community going, why are you dressed up like a soldier? Is there a party you're going to? I'm like, nah, man, that's been me for 16 years. And amazing. Watching people's heads explode has been fantastic. But um, long story short afterwards, uh, Blake was my first public relationship and uh it really became my identity and we became such a quote power couple in the gay world you know the former commando and six at one american bloody former national cheerleader like blake's a um underwear and swimwear model and he's the most perfect example of what i thought i wanted physically as a partner but there's more to a relationship than that and um after four years it should have been shorter than that but um we broke up and we broke out just at the very we literally were in the US and broke up and landed back to being the first planes at the start of 2019 that had to go into mandatory self-isolation together for two weeks. Wow. So we spent two weeks just having broken up a couple of days beforehand uh, in self-isolation together in our apartment, which was great. And then we had one week out and then the nation went into two weeks of lockdown. So we went through a very uh, accelerated um, breakup um, camp. <laughs> Decoupling. Oh my as God. Gwyneth would put it. <laughs> and the one thing that kept us together probably that extra year than we shouldn't than we should have was my, our little sausage dog copper that he actually surprised Aww. me with. And uh I tell you what, that you know, one hour of exercise you got each day, copper got so many walks uh during those periods when his dads had been frustrated and fighting with each other and one had to leave. But look, the best part is we talk through everything in our entire relationship, which we hadn't done for years. And I was so good at teaching others to communicate and going in and doing keynote speaking and all this, but I'd never um, faced and had to be vulnerable with someone. Um, I'd always known what I was doing and been excellent at what I'd done, but I'd never 
actually been emotionally mature. I have, I'm emotionally intelligent, but I never had to face and deal with emotions like love actually work on a relationship just as opposed to exist in it and everything else in between. And, um, a long story short, after lockdown, Blake went back to the U S and COVID started took, sort of took over as it does. And I found myself in the loneliest place I've ever been in my life. Um, I'd always been with surrounded by people in the commandos and in the army and responsible for them. Um, I didn't have a job anymore at that time in COVID. Um, I'd left Barry's and, you know, lots of people were out with jobs and I was left at home <laughs> with copper and fast forward to August that year and so many other things going on in the defense community. By this time I'd been fighting with DVA for nearly 18 months to try and get surgery on my knee that I'd snapped my patella tendon back in 2014, but hidden it so I could deploy to the U S through to, um, you know, just trying to work through the different layers and levels of the red tape that that exhaustive process is. And at the same time, there'd been about six or seven of the guys I'd known from the commandos and special forces who had taken their own lives. Um, and guys that weren't directly in my platoon, but guys that I knew in that very tight community and guys that, you know, were warriors uh, who had literally, you know, faced death, taken life, protected life, but had somehow come back home and decided to overdose, leaving their wife and their kids and all these sorts of things because they couldn't handle what they were going through. And a lot of it does come down to what I spoke about beforehand, coming down from being the most relevant you'll ever be in your life to a world where you don't know how you can be useful and for a refined, sharpened, highly capable tool like us, it's, it's a terrible place to be like idle hands are the devil's work. And um, yeah, it really is uncomfortable. Uh, and one day I got a call about one of my guys um, who tried to take his life. And next thing that evening, it took me to a place where the most obvious thing and absolute thing with such determination, like I was planning a commando mission in Afghanistan, I decided that I had to take my own life to make sure that people were taking this seriously. And by this time I had 50 or 60,000 followers on Instagram. I'd been on the media for a few things. You know, I was, you know, quite known within um, the gay community and a public facing community. And I thought, you know, that, that picture, that coming out picture needed to be the next picture to help people feel more tangible that there was a crisis going on in the veteran community. And so many of my guys had struggled through interviews with the Brown report at this time had been shocked by some of the allegations that were coming out. I'd been interviewed by the Brown inquiry team twice and thought that I had been told that things were occurring that were perfectly legal and justified, you know, in every court of law and every action we were required, but someone was going through them eight years later with a fine tooth comb with their own agenda, looking for things that weren't there. And um, all of that combined to sort of bring me to a, a state where I had lost my proactive layers of resilience, where I was alone and where I found purpose in taking my life. So I set about planning, writing what I needed to do. And as the weird twist of fate comes, Copper came and literally put his head on my lap because I needed to feed him and snapped me out of that. However long it was of, you know, going down that spiral. And it really helped me to get a better relationship and understanding of suicide. I really related back to when I would see people on the selection course come up to you and with their withdrawal and request form, 
so adamant with every ounce of their being that they had to withdraw off that course, even though they knew how much effort they put into it. They were in that mindset. That's all they wanted to do. And you get them to put their pack and their webbing on the car and you start driving them off the range and you'd watch in the rear vision mirror while they're sitting in the back seat. All, all of a sudden they just have this moment of clarity and they go, what the hell have I done? And you pull over the car and you talk them through how focused they were at sabotaging or deciding that this wasn't for them. And that's the mindset I had. And it wasn't at the bottom of a whiskey bottle. It wasn't, you know, any extreme depression. It was the most motivated I'd felt in probably a couple of years. <laughs> and, um, I was shamed. I was ashamed. I was absolutely ashamed um, of, really? all the, of all the things I lived through. I'm sitting in my apartment in Sydney with my dog. Uh, and I think that I need to take my own life. I was ashamed with how I'd make my mum, my parents feel, my sister. Um, I was ashamed at what others would think of me. You know, people saw me as an aspirational figure in the gay community, an aspirational figure in the military community. I had a great career. My career was the best part about me. It was just authentic and real. And I achieved a lot. But um, uh, I looked at the letter I'd written and I sort of said, hey, what are you doing? Like, are you comfortable with someone else reading this? Are you comfortable with someone else telling your story? Or is the responsibility actually yours to talk through all of this because you've just lived it and potentially almost been another inquiry for which they struggle through trying to understand and asking why? So I sort of put my hat of responsibility back on and said, this needs to be me. And I next day sort of told my mum and my sister and dealt with that and I actually then spoke with one of my close army mates from the commandos that I kept in touch with. And it was actually that conversation where I told him what I'd been through and he listened and he's just said back to me, I haven't told anyone else this, but I felt exactly that as well. And we sat there and we talked and then I started calling other dudes and eight out of 10 dudes had said that at some point they had felt that way. And uh, a lot of them had said they never expected to hear that from me and that me um, telling them and being vulnerable to tell that had made them feel that it was okay to accept and shake off some of that shame, but also appreciate that there's more work to be done. So one of those mates um, was a mate, um, Scotty Evan, I know he's not going to mind me saying that, but he's like, mate, we need to like sit down and just record this conversation and, and talk. And that was us starting the voice of a veteran podcast and, um, that was me reaching out to the ministers, reaching out to veterans affairs, reaching out to those that I knew in politics and getting to meet with the ministers and the secretary for DBA and telling my story. And all of a sudden them trying to bring me into the fold and me getting on media and talking about that. And then all of a sudden a month and a bit later, the ABC accused my platoon of a war crime and I jumped straight in the media and smashed that. And then another month later, the Burton report was released and they tried to take you know, citation away from over 3000 veterans, including yeah. the, the mm. 20 who died in Afghanistan. And I straight away set up a public petition, took to the media and we stopped that. And then good on you. saw that we needed a Royal commission to look into these issues. And we campaigned for a Royal commission and won, won that the same month we won the citations remaining. So the bursting into the public, as you sort of say, came from a place of dealing with my own mental health um, and finally realizing my responsibility to do what I could to help break down stigmas and have those conversations from the conversations I'd had. And then just a sequence of events from the attacks from the ABC through to the burn report just 
one, two, three, um, line that platform up. That was needed. That wasn't one that I manifested myself. You've, you've been very vocal in terms of which, and rightfully so, um, in regards to supports for the veterans, which I think that there's a lack of in Australia, especially when you sort of look at it from an American point of view and how they view their servicemen and and so forth. Um, How do you think we can help that transition for veterans out? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, especially from the commando point of view, but it's general um, army as well in terms of your shooting, your, your fast roping, your, you know, whatever you need to do to be able to planning, organizing um, in terms of your role within the military. But then how does, how do you capture that and convey that to a corporate world to utilize those skills in a different setting? Well, first and foremost, it's a lot of the issue. We keep trying to look on our ability to translate or transfer the experience of our soldiers, sailors, airmen and women into corporate Australia. And Australia has this terrible propensity, in my opinion, to focus on qualifications and achievements on paper, as opposed to what actually constitutes them as a person. Um, And I say this, I'll take a bit of a journey. You know, the military is fantastic at indoctrinating people into service where they take your individual identity and basically issue you with a collective identity that sees your personal identity subordinate to the mission, the team, um, the institution, and that, provides that all immersive intrinsic and extrinsic motivations all around you through um, adventure experience, mateship and everything else in between. Then what we do at the very end uh, is we try to reconstitute somebody's individual identity out of that completely different culture, um, a culture that prides responsibility, selflessness. That is the largest for purpose organization and reconstitute it into a CV or a resume for someone going into a culture that focuses on employment for profit, that focuses on selfishness and self-progression over selflessness and team and mission before self. And we think that that's enough. We don't help them to understand the soft skills, the complex problem-solving skills, the leadership skills, the communication skills, the emotional intelligence they have and take them through an emotional maturity and decompartmentalization prior to pushing them out into the real world. And I simply say this, Before we deployed Afghanistan, you go through such cultural immersion training to make sure you understand the local customs traditions from making sure you don't shake with a certain hand because that's the hand they wipe their ass with through to all the other little nuances of the sort of value set and behavioral patterns that you're going to encounter there. So you're not, you know, you don't take offense to any of them. And so you can actually look to at the elite level, utilize some of them to help coerce, manipulate, motivate people to do what you need them to do. We don't do that because we take for granted that we just, you know, in the military and living in Australian society, but the military is more than a career and people are sold on the military being their life, not on being just a temporary career. And they're so invested in their identity is their role and time in the military that most of us are only partly foot outside of the military in our social life. We have a family and things like that for sure, but particularly, and the suicide statistics show us, young men, particularly under the age of 40, who leave the military, uh, you know, increase by nearly two times the um, probability of experiencing suicidal ideation than regular members of society. 
you know, women as well, it's a higher number, but there are lower women as a percentage. And we're not focusing on that. We're applying generic templates to it. We're not helping these young men and young women understand who they are outside of a position, a role, a rank, a title, a piece of paper and qualifications on a sheet to understand and have confidence in who they are. In the US, they have a fantastic transition glide path where first and foremost, they recruit people for a finite mission. This is a career and you're going to go on to be an even better American. And American society through Pearl Harbor and the Twin Towers have had to viscerally feel the importance of the defense force. Australians don't. We've had a bubble. We had Darwin bombed and we had a submarine in the Sydney Harbor. You know, people don't understand. We've always gone offshore to fight. So we don't have that at a social level. And when Afghanistan fell in 2021 and I did so much media, the question they were asking, was it worth it? And that was the red light moment to me to realize that the biggest strategic failing was we haven't taken the Australian public through the last 20 years of what our servicemen and women have been doing overseas. And mm. we're leaving it up to them to tell their own story when they get out, when they're trained to put themselves last in the line of importance and trying to pedestal themselves. Again, something that the Americans do so much better on a cultural level. So the Americans transition people with a focus on three things. You want to transition to another government department or agency, then there's a clearly established glide path where throughout your career, you can do these competencies to better help you do that. You want to transition into corporate life, then they'll actually have relationships with corporates and identify that from an early age, early time in their career, and again, have training glide paths. Or, and one of the most hugely successful pathways is, do you want to transition out to run or own your own business? Veterans make the best small business founders and operators because you're so used to doing everything across the board from supporting and training people, solving problems, going out there, identifying resources, building things, having creative and operations and all of this. Whereas most corporate roles, they put you into a job description and you are narrowed by the margins of that. And it actually is a bit of a frustrating place for a lot of junior ranking members to go into that sort of situation. So it's good for senior non-commissioned officers and officers who have basically had their identity established at a more independent level to being a, a member of the team, if that makes sense. You know, as you progress up the ranks of responsibility, you get to establish a bit more of your own individual identity. But when you're down within the team, within the platoon, whatever, you, it's much more of a collective personality. And then to individualize that on the way out um, is part of the problem, I think, and part of the focus on this corporate transition. So I really think we need to bring a lot more into things like Certificate 4 for small business, all these other sorts of things that better help veterans appreciate what they can do. And I think for a very quick example, there's close to like 4,000 um, ex-service organizations or veteran charities that are all veteran founded and run. And that is a an exact representation of the innovation and ingenuity that veterans have to set up businesses and help to solve problems within the veteran community. Where that's done much better than the US is they have systems that better support their veterans and those businesses are instead veteran owned businesses serving the greater US and global market, as opposed to supporting their internal veteran community. So if that's the issue that's been identified, then what's the solution in terms of getting that into the bigger wheel, which is the military? Is it better to do it from a, a private sort of situation and then try and plug that into the um, out funnel from the military out funnel? Or is it something that needs to come directly which obviously then is a time factor point of view and bureaucracy. Um, can't even say that word bureaucracy, uh, whatever. Um, 
say brewery. I can't say brewery either. Um, uh, is it easier to sort of plug in or is it something that needs to be purpose-built within the military? Yeah, great question. So the very quick example I use is when I was running the special force, the commando selection course, which also we ran the support staff selection course as well. I had the same group of people who traveled around the country and ran the induction training to filter it down from the thousands to the hundred or so that would start course. And every single person that went onto the course were interviewed by myself and all my team, uh, depending upon, you know, I interviewed all the officers and most of the seniors and um, everyone got interviewed. And then the same people, the same team would interview them when they left the course or regardless when they finished the course. And what you're able to do was maintain a very tight learning loop where you saw people come off the course who at the start of the course were so aligned and you put your bets on them. And they came off the course because they decided that they weren't in the right personal relationship position with their loved one. There was a child on the way that they never told you about this and the other. Then you would go back into those induction training and make sure you briefed, hey, you need to have your personal life. We have had people pull off the course because their wives are pregnant. You need to realize this will weigh on your head when we have you alone and questioning why you were there. Through to, hey, we had six people pull off this course with bursitis. We'd bring in the PTIs. We'd bring in the RAS team and going, hey, what activities did we do this year that were different to last year? Was there any, any environmental conditions? Were there any workplace conditions? Or... Do we need to develop some form of, you know, adapted training into the pre-physical training program to make sure that people are building up the resilience required in their needs um, or make sure they're not overtraining before the course and carrying things in? We could maintain that very tight learning loop. Now, that's a very micro piece. I get it. Let's look at defense recruiting at the moment. So within the military, you have the different service providers in the army you have schema and Dockham that handle soldiers and officers in their careers. And at the very end, there's the transition process, which is run by, you know, the defense transition team. And then at the front end, you have contractors running defense recruitment. You have three different elements that have different touch points on people's career. And one of the things I think defense did particularly poorly when I was leaving, but apparently is doing better now is re-recruitment, recruiting people back in as capability requirements change within the defense force. This joint transition authority they've stepped up the last couple of years, I've been hoping is going to be that panacea, but they're again applying it at the output, at the transition piece on the outside. When if you break it down, you know, even just philosophically, but practically transitioning into the military from civilian life is a transition. So if you're transitioning people to become from civilians into the military, then you need to be able to reverse engineer that on the way out. And how are you going to be able to do that unless you know firsthand how that's being operated at the start? And also, you know, contracting out to contract civilian contract providers with some military DFR defense force recruiting elements in there. You know, the best way to select the right people is selecting your own and having that experience and being that aspiration that people want to join. Um, so I believe we need to do a lot more to somehow bring the transition out and the transition ends in together that also help to provide so much more logical and progressive conversations about why you're recruiting people and why people are, are leaving at an organizational level. Uh, and again, within the US, they do to that in a very unique way. And it's really heavily filled with veterans, current and former serving defense members being integral to those elements, be they in uniform or be they out as civilians coming back in to do those roles. So to summarize, it needs to be from the <laughs> army, <laughs> the military, <laughs> not, not a corporate plug-in. 
not a corporate plug. And this is a lot of the issues we find. So I now run my charity, Veteran Support Force, vsf.org.au, and we try and really focus a lot on providing these conversations, information to those in government and those in the bureaucrats and those in the departments who have um, these questions. And I've said all these conversations to the last Secretary of Veterans Affairs, to the last three Ministers of Veterans Affairs, to their staff. But everyone's like, oh, it's too hard basket, essentially. It has to be a collaborative focus of both defense and veterans affairs. This gap between the two departments is where we are failing in this system, in my opinion. And the ex-service community, veterans on the outside are the best people to come back in and support veterans to transition. But defense and veterans affairs love to put up a wall unless you are one of the very big organizations in the veteran community, which I believe have lost their way in actually doing their job. They are fantastic at making money and supporting veterans. I'm just not confident the ratio and relativity of those two meet in the middle anymore. Um, and it comes down to position. It comes down to being the premier organization, being the one that politics politicians talk about, as opposed to helping veterans and helping veterans transition and also bridging the age gap between the more senior members of Australian society who head up a lot of these historical organizations and the actual relatability, if not aspirational um, engagement and connection that some of us uh, more contemporary veterans could actually help to achieve the greater outcome. And instead it becomes a place of competition and comparison and it just becomes so tiresome. Given the frustration with red tape bureaucracy um, politics in play, I see where you're going with this. Yeah. <laughs> Why the hell did you go into politics? <laughs> because I got to that point of frustration where I thought the only thing we could do was to actually change it from the inside out. I have spent the last, since 2020, you know, after my suicidal ideation, I, two weeks later, was on a Zoom call with the Secretary of Veterans Affairs and her um commissioners. I then went down to Canberra and met with the ministers. I did working groups at DVA. DVA, the secretary offered me a job within DVA. Um, but instead, because of the reputation, I said, no, I'm better on the outside working with you. And I got to see how so much of it is about ticking boxes and moving things around and offering you a job and you giving them solutions from literally going, hey, I plan to take my own life. Do you want to take on board any of these things to realizing that I probably would have been more productive in helping to change the system if I had of taken my own life and, oh, had, God, don't say and that. had a detailed plan to do that. No, but that's where I've gone, hey, cool. Well, I'm not going to do that. And that time that ship has sailed, but how can I be more influential here and now? You have to get in there. Like that's where we campaign to try and literally focus on taking over the veterans affairs portfolio, trying to have veterans help veterans from the top down as well as the bottom up. And um that's on a, And this also came after we won the Royal Commission and retained the unit citations. I had eight different political parties approach me and ask me to run for them. And I went through the process of meeting with a few of them. And I didn't meet with politicians. I met with backroom, mm. people with the money. Preference whisperers. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and I got to look at how controlled so many of these people are also how untrained so many of these people are you know they're spread so thin that they don't have you know training and planning routines and discipline and all these sorts of things like hey we can put together a team and you know just like get in there and do what needs to be done and follow through on why we campaign for the royal commission and capitalize on that here and now because it's an immediate requirement um, and instead 
I learned so quickly how much it actually comes down to your relationships with the media, um, the money that can be made from having people in power and how the big political parties are very professional at being political parties and winning elections, less so on actually, you know, selecting politicians who have lived experience and will properly represent people. Um, and, you know, we found ourselves sort of getting blocked out by media and getting just attacked on every front from other media. And it was really a really great insight into the, the game that is politics as opposed to the authentic purpose we hoped it to be. I'm glad you touched on the uh, media aspect of things because I I think one of the, from an outsider looking at your situation, you've been one hand, everyone everyone wants a piece of you whenever there's a military side of things. And then from a political point of view, when you were running for the Senate, everyone was um, dropping you like a hot potato and, and, but then you still have to sort of play the game, so to speak, in regards to the big the big media outlets is where you're going to get your main coverage in regards to your issues. So although that they may not be overly friendly with you in some regards, you've also got to sort of entertain them to some degree because you've got to get your message across. How do you sort of strike that balance? Yeah, you're right. So like I was the go-to guy on every single military conversation um, and particularly, you know, Sky News during the election was meant to have me on uh, this um, panel of Senate candidates in Queensland. And two days out, I got dropped from the panel and replaced by Bob Catter, who's a friend, but wasn't even running from the Senate. And I took to social media and I literally posted the emails. I saw that, yeah. Demonstrating the, um, you know, the, the blocking and the censoring that they did. And you'll note, I haven't been on Sky News ever since. And it's incredible because they're one of the first outlets who gets on there and slams the ABC and others for cancelling and wokeism. And they cancelled me for not agreeing with their agenda. And you're right. If you want to wield the media as that resource to push your message out further, then there is some potential pandering you need to do, or you just need to focus on your message, your community and communicating the way you need to doing things like this podcast, you know, getting out there actually on the ground and getting back to word of mouth and community connection. I think particularly as more and more people are waking up to the agendas and the revenue streams that control the media. Um, It's so important for us to reinforce. And I went, I used to be a javelin instructor and I fired a javelin in the uh, in Afghanistan. I love talking about javelin has two modes, has direct attack and it has top attack. And I went for too much of a top attack approach when it came to the politics where my strength of support and my passion and purpose was with the ground up approach, was with the direct where it was needed as opposed to trying to go through all the systems and positioning in between. So. I'm literally just back to focusing on the community, launching the veteran games, focusing on Mm. the community where it is needed. Uh, And when you are doing things for the right reasons and people at the community level are coming to you and supporting you, then the media starts to see, hey, why are all these people over here looking at this, supporting this, and why don't we know about it? Because the media needs to be relevant. They need to be involved in these things. Otherwise, more and more people see them as irrelevant. So they'll come to you and they do come to you. You know, it's actually just different tactics. If you keep trying to chase them, then they know you need them and then they have the power. Whereas if you just simply are doing things for the right reasons and getting the cut through that's needed, nine times out of 10, the media will start coming to you. Um, 
and just realizing you don't need the media. They need you. You need to work on the people and the places and the spaces where that support is needed. And this is part of the issue we have in Australian government at the moment. You have politicians who are elected who need the media to seem relevant and to get their message out. And the media needs them to be relevant, to get their message out. And you'll see these politicians having these interviews. And then all of a sudden there's a real person who asks them a question and they don't know what to do. It fascinates me. And that's where we're at. We're, we're picking people who are, you know, press secretaries and who are great at debating and who are great at putting on performances, but who have no idea how to sit down and plan in a crisis, who have no idea how to actually motivate people when there is something bigger and scarier out there to motivate them in the opposite direction. I saw that, I think it was the Liberals took up your um, suggestion of a separate force in regards to disaster relief and instead of using the ADF, it was interesting. That's been fun. I mean, even look, when we campaigned down in Victoria, we were so open that one of our key policies was decriminalising cannabis and psilocybin, taking that conversation away from the hippies and coming from a place where I have seen veterans in the US cured by Mm. micro and megadosing psilocybin, cannabis treatment and MDMA therapies. All of a sudden, all of a sudden out of the blue, nationally in Australia from 1st July, it's going to be legalised therapy, cannabis and psilocybin. Now that's not us. That's so many other organisations in the background, but getting back to focusing on the outcomes as opposed to the politics and the processes in between is where we've been able to achieve and work with others to achieve those outcomes and actually appreciating that that's where we derive our value from helping people as opposed to being the people at the end who are the ones getting the interviews and getting the accolades. And that's where I think the real strength in and enjoyment uh, is as opposed to, you know, living your life, Meaning, meaning to be something else um, on cameras, on TVs. Talk to me about the veteran games. I know we're we're yeah. sort of at the time limit, so I, I want to sort of have a chat to you about the veteran games. How is it different to the ones that have uh, in the UK and the um, in America? Yeah, yeah. So most people hear the veteran games and think about Invictus Games. Invictus Games is um, adaptive sports to help veterans who are sick, wounded, or injured or ill get back into basically civilian sports, team sports, individual sports. The veteran games um, was a concept I first thought about when it was declared we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan. And a friend of mine is Normie Rowe, and he helped to organize the Welcome Home Parade for the Vietnam veterans in the 1980s uh, and really be that turning point that helped uh, a lot of those veterans get back together as a community uh, and to um, embrace and accept that identity that society had you know, tried to push them away from. Um, and I wanted to do that as early as possible and not have other issues come out. Like we've been dealing with these war crimes allegations and everything else in between, but then Afghanistan collapsed terribly and we didn't really want mm. to reinforce any of that at that time. But so the veteran games is also the byproduct of all this work we've done on the mental health space and this isolation, loss of purpose, loss of community, which is the outcomes and findings of the Royal Commission time and time again. So it requires veterans, current or former serving, to reach out and form their own team of eight, which was in itself a key working group finding that if you put teams together, they'll usually fall apart once the games are done. And a lot of people, quote, fall off a cliff when they lose that community and that purpose. So form your own teams, build your own bonds that will last beyond the games that will make you more motivated to work out and train together. And 
they're going to come together and compete in at least two events they know about, team tug of war and team obstacle course, stuff we've all been trained in our military career, helps to identify with some of those fun parts of our military identity and in a public way that we already know Australians would love to tune in and watch and also ways in which are competitive and fun for us because they're equalizers. You can't sit there and talk about how good you are at an obstacle course. We're going to show it and prove it. And then there's <laughs> going to be two or three other events that are going to be surprise events. They're going to be events that need to draw on teamwork, communication, and their military skills and experience. You know, it's going to test people in a fun way and achievable way. Um, and the plan is to do it annually. So people will be able to have a purpose to connect and train together and come together and demonstrate excellence and teamwork and part of that service that will help to provide a positive contemporary veteran narrative to the Australian public through actions, not through words. We'll do everything that my team does amazingly. We'll stream it online. We'll capture it. We'll reproduce it. We'll show the difference and some of the value veterans can provide as opposed to this perpetuating broken veteran narrative and everything else in between. Mm. And the key part is there are veterans who need help. There are broken veterans, but there are others who are not. And it is those who are not engaged in veteran services. There are others who are not at that critical level of support who too often are the ones left out there and then progress down to a level where they need reactive support. This is a proactive health initiative to try and build a proactive routine and encouragement and purpose to help to head off some of these things before they're required to help to bring some of the community together, because that's how we have conversations, keep each other authentic, learn about, you know, what resources and um, supports there are out there because there's so much out there and there's so much amazingness that all these 4,000 veteran community groups are doing, but you don't know about it usually until you hear it from someone else. And when you do hear it from someone else, you know, you sort of have that forward scout who can help you, you know, with what you're doing. So we're launching the first ever veteran games here on the Gold Coast, 29th of September or 30th September, sorry, to the 2nd of October. It's the King's birthday long weekend. And it's going to be two days of heats followed by probably the top 10 teams coming together for a finals. That's going to be all singing, all dancing. And, um, yeah, really, really looking forward to it. And we've launched the website. We did the media launch. We're open to sponsors, veterangames.com. I am looking forward to this so much because, again, it's put up or shut up. Come Are you get- competing? No, I can't. I mean, I'm running the thing. That would that'd be, that'd be, that'd be <laughs> rude. And, again, like it's not you know activities taken from the selection course, but like you and I said at the start of this podcast, it's – activities designed to test and demonstrate specific attributes that are going to be fun and creative and are going to help showcase some of what we can do instead of talk about what we can't do. Heston, as members of the public that aren't tapped into the veteran community, how can we support the veterans? What's the most practical thing that someone can do? I mean, a little bit of self-education on, you know, find a veteran, have a chat to them, to be honest. Um, don't look at us with wounded eyes and treat us with, um, you know, cotton wool hands, cotton wool gloves. Like, you know, we are well-trained, uh, well-experienced and are probably just looking for the ability to put that into practice, like force us to have those conversations and contextualize it from a place of, Hey, if you don't tell me then I'm only going to hear what I see in the media or I'm going to make up my own assumptions. You help us be in that place of service and responsibility. You're going to get a lot more for us. Um, And then, you know, 
help us out with the veteran games, get involved, come be a volunteer. <laughs> but education and understanding are the key to better supporting veterans to feel understood outside of the defense force. I spoke before about how, you know, the public didn't even know and still doesn't know what we did in Afghanistan. We didn't learn from the same issues in Vietnam. So the more the general public can do to just help to better understand our veterans, that they're everyday Australians, in my opinion, they actually have the skills to be able to be even better Australians. They just need the opportunity to do so. And part of that comes down to them having confidence in who they are and having conversations with them. You'll be able to say, hey, wow, like you have such a great experience and perspective that most of us take for granted until you speak to someone who doesn't have that and goes like, why are you afraid of putting yourself out there? Like you've literally been in combat and you're worried about trolls online. You're like, oh, shit, you're right. No one's just ever put it in that way. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And we often, you know, it takes a, it takes a village to help us at every phase and stage, particularly those low stages and particularly those transitions in our life. So I just encourage you to have conversations, do a bit of self-education um, and appreciate it's an ongoing process. Thanks, Heston. Pleasure chatting with you. I could, I, there's so many things that we didn't get to, so I'll have to have you oh, back sorry. on it in a later date. I've got hours worth of conversations yet to go. Oh, sorry, I love to talk. <laughs> it's not that I can hear my own voice. It's just stuff that I'm passionate about. I'm I know, sorry. and I know that you've got a heart out, so I know that we can't keep chatting. But thank you so much for uh, coming on. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, it happen. We'll talk again. Cheers. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.